you you've all seen the TV programs where your knees fold and you you fall to the ground. I can assure you that is exactly what happens. I literally buckled, had to catch myself and just sat and I pulled myself back up. I'm like, this isn't over. We still have two other people in the field and we need to get Ray out too. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. This episode of The Fine Line is brought to you by Roadhouse Brewing Company, supporting backcountry safety in the Jackson Hole community since 2012. Located in the heart of the Tetons, Roadhouse Brewing Company embodies the authentic spirit of the West, where your word is your honor, quality is your craft, and adventure is rooted in your soul. For more information on Roadhouse and its town square pub and eatery, visit roadhousebrewery.com. On February 15, 2012, Teton County Search and Rescue received an emergency call to help an injured snowmobiler in the Togedy area about 60 miles northeast of Jackson, Wyoming. The response started like many others, with the team gathering at the hangar to decide on a plan. Given the remote nature of the accident, they decided to send the helicopter pilot with two search and rescue volunteers, Mike Moyer and Ray Shriver. The routine call would turn out to be anything but, as tragedy unfolded under a blue Wyoming sky forcing the volunteers to search for their own, with Shriver, a founding Teton County Search and Rescue member, paying the ultimate price. In this two-part series, we remember Shriver as an influential, if hard-nosed, volunteer and father. We explore how the team was able to emerge from the wreckage and move forward. We start with Shriver's two sons, who knew their dad as a committed outdoorsman, whose path to search and rescue started after they were nearly all killed in an avalanche on Teton Pass. On January 20th, 1991. We were skiing on Teton Pass off the top of Glory. And yeah, it was one of those days where it was like a beautiful day. We hadn't had powder forever. Zach and I were just visiting for the weekend. I was 10 years old. You must have been 13, 13. then. 13, yeah. 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 I'm Matt Shriver. I actually live in Belgium right now. I'm the youngest of the two sons, so. I'm Zach Shriver. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico with my wife and now two kids for about 10 years. Moved here from Colorado to take a job with the Los Alamos Fire Department, where I currently work. Born in Jackson, then split time between the Tetons and Pocatello, Idaho for growing up. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say we are really spoiled <laughs> to live, live in such beautiful areas. Going out into the mountains, into the woods anytime we wanted, you know, like riding our bikes. We, we would ride our bikes everywhere around town in Jackson in the summertime, go fishing in Flat Creek, and he never wanted us to be inside. <laughs> yeah. He didn't want us sitting in, in front of the TV after school. So our, our parents were actually separated. But when we were in Pocatello, 
he would know, like he would call and after school and see how we were doing. And he'd be like, you need to go out and play. Don't be sitting inside watching cartoons or, you know, yeah. And we just were skiing snowshoe bowl off the top of the pass. And at that time, I would say we were really uneducated. Our dad knew what he was doing, but Zach and I being so young, we didn't really know. And yeah, we, we got caught in a pretty, in a really big slide and we got really lucky. I didn't have a transceiver. Our dad didn't have one even, I think, um, maybe. Mm -mm. And we were just really lucky. We were skiing. We had bumped into some other people, Jay Pistano, and he saw the whole thing. And that was the wake up call for, for us and for our dad, I think, to like and figure it out because for sure that was the turning point. Like every time we went out, it was, we were way more prepared from that point on. Our dad was an athlete, very involved, doing his own thing. But at that point, I think it, yeah, wake up call to be like, okay, I want to put back and, you know, educate the community. Um, he did at least one talk. I remember at Snow King about it, maybe some others, but we were extremely lucky that day. Something, someone, whatever was looking out for us, you know, and uh, like he said, he shouldn't he shouldn't have lived through it, you know, or whatever. So I feel like he, he's like, I got to do something to put back and try to help people avoid those situations and, and uh, that sort of stuff. And I also think it really, I mean, it scared us all too. We skied much differently from then on and continue to just from that experience. He still loved to ski, you know, that's, that was his, I would say his primary passion was backcountry skiing. He'd been doing it for I would say he was one of the pioneers in Jackson area for, you know, skiing the, the back country or cross country skiing. So he still had passion for that after it was just different. I think just because of the, the risk there and, and then just having other focuses more on the, the community and putting back and rather than himself. My mom decided to go to college. Pocatello is where she got in. Our parents were still together at that time. We all moved over there. And actually our, our, our dad had a tough time there. He really missed the, the big mountains. That's really who he was, was the mountains and the Tetons. And that's one reason why he went back. Both my, my mom and dad were from Salina, Kansas. And then after the military, they were doing a trip around the West on where they wanted to move. It ended up being Jackson. We lived in a little cabin there at the mouth of Cash Creek, and that's where both Matt and I were born. It's no longer there. There's the, the Pioneer Homestead or something there. They moved over to onto Fox Creek between Victor and Driggs. And at that time, he was working for uh, Nelson Engineering, civil engineering stuff. I think the military was really good for our dad. Is my understanding, his dad was kind of unavailable at times. That's kind of where some of his character and attributes come from are the military. I, he, he spoke highly of it. He even told both Matt and I, he's like, he, he said, that would be a really good thing for you guys to do. Getting the discipline, getting a, a focus, getting a, a purpose, being part of a team, that kind of stuff. He was really proud to be part of the army. Before that, he was, I would say out of control a little bit in Salina. Yeah. Hot rods down main. <laughs> 
Main Street, you know, just tearing up the town. That was his reputation in small town Salina was kind of a punk kid, like drag racing down Maine. And he was drafted. He was in the army. He went over and was uh, stationed in Germany. He actually didn't make it to Vietnam because his dad died while he was there. Because he was an only child and carried the name, he had to go back to Germany and then eventually back to the United States. So he never was in combat that I know of. He went through all of the training and all of that stuff. For sure, the military changed him in a good way. What people didn't see a lot of him, he was really, really deep down, kind, compassionate, caring. Matt and I would see that from our sides. We'd also see that real serious side of him and tough and, and we learned a lot. You know, it was hard um, sometimes as a kid having that, but it was also, I, I'm really glad that that's how he parented and how, who he was. You know, I'm really grateful for that. I feel like a lot of that came from military a little bit. He pushed us to, to whatever we were focused on to, to do well and, and maybe even push us a little bit too hard sometimes. I'd say like Zach and I were both racing bikes, right? And that was our passion. And my dad also supported us in that. But sometimes it was, um, he wanted us to succeed, you know, maybe more than we did. And sometimes he would push a little too hard and then he would find the limit, but um, yeah, he, he could be hard, but only for, for good reasons, right? Like he wanted to see us succeed and, and, and do well. So he was very supportive and in, in whatever we were doing, whether it was soccer or racing bikes. And Matt and I were both working at a bike shop up at Dornads at adventure sports. And, um, he would drop us off either in Jackson, we would catch a ride over the pass because we live, you know, in Victor. So we'd catch a ride over with them with our bikes he, and we would ride to work and work at the bike shop until three o'clock or whatever. But we needed to be back by the time he left the office. So there were a couple times where for whatever reason, we got busy at the shop working and stuff. We'd get there like at 5.01 and see him driving off and he would just be <laughs> like, see ya. It wasn't like he was mad, but he, he wanted us to be accountable, stick to what we needed, you know, his expectations, I guess. So Matt and I would figure it out. Sometimes we would ride over the pass, usually on the way home and on the compassionate side, he would, he would drive back up the road, check on us. Just be like, all right, you're doing okay. You're going to be home. We'll see you at home and then head back home. So a lot of people would think, oh, that's tough. That's harsh. But in a lot of ways, it built a lot of character for both Matt and I. And then we learned to not be late or communicate with him that why we're late. He was always still concerned about us getting home. It was extra training, actually. That's what... yeah, exactly. It was more respect respect, you know, like need to respect his time too, because he, he had worked all day and he also wanted to get home. And so, but yeah, like Zach said, he would always come back and make sure we were okay. And he was very respectful, just respected everyone for who they were. He always chose to listen rather than be the talker. 
he was an observer, something that I'll, I'll always remember about him and that I've tried to adapt in my own life is that he never spoke bad about anyone. Sometimes people get into gossiping and all of that stuff. He was not that person and just never did that, which I, I personally really respected and try to pick up and use in my life also. In the beginning, Ray was kind of like, you're kind of an odd duck, dude. I mean, he was okay going out in the woods, sitting on a mountaintop by himself, being a radio repeater. He would love that job. As we became closer throughout Search and Rescue, he, he truly was a great friend. My name is Tim Seal Carlin. I've been on the team since the beginning in 1993, uh, January of 1993. One of the last three remaining original members of the team. I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, and I came to Jackson right out of college. I was here... Uh, I was here a little bit in 77, went back to school, and then came here pretty much full-time about 1980. A few years before 1993, I, I knew nothing about search and rescue whatsoever. But what I have come to learn as Roger Millward, who was quite an athlete himself at the time, he and a deputy or two and mostly civilian volunteers would just go up and they would muscle people out of the backcountry. They had a, uh, up on the pass, they had a litter stashed and a few things, but they didn't have a plan. They, they just went out and did it with sheer brute force. And uh, it was pretty commendable because no training per se, no, no equipment per se. Um, they were just athletic and, um, good mountain people and they got the job done. We were hired by the uh, sheriff's office back then and a civilian came in from Las Vegas. His name was Alan Merrill and he actually started the team. He went to the sheriff and um, approached the sheriff, said, you need a search and rescue team. I'm willing to do the work. And um, he and then Sheriff Roger Millward came to terms and Alan moved forward uh, building the team along with help of uh, then Deputy Mike Delaney. I don't know if it's sad or funny, but um, I was going through a bad girlfriend moment and um, there, there was an ad in the paper, you know, hey, do you want to be part of search and rescue and join this team and help others? And, and I was telling my friend at the time, I'm like, this looks like a great distraction, and a great way to stay in shape and, and maybe learn something. And so I sent an application and um, went through the interview process and was fortunate enough to be chosen by then Alan and, and, and Mike Delaney. My name is Mike Moyer and I'm a, a paramedic with Teton County Search and Rescue and a team member since 93. Soon after I moved here, I walked into the sheriff's office before there was an actual team and, and as a 19 or 20 year old um, expressed my interest to the sheriff uh, of being involved with search and rescue and and uh, it's funny to think back now but he politely thanked me for my interest and I never heard another word two or three four years later um, after having been involved in the community for a little while and working EMS the team was formed and I applied at that point and uh, got involved I'd always had an interest in in the backcountry and, and survival and search and rescue, and um, that's how I got involved. Probably in that 
first uh, in our first team trainings when the team was forming um, would have been when I first met Ray. Ray was one of the original members and was involved from the start. You know, Ray had a lot of backcountry experience prior to joining the team and, you know, spent all kinds of time in the backcountry with his boys. And, and one of the, as he told it, the keys to him joining the team was that he had been involved in an avalanche, and that was uh, one of the factors that drove him to have interest in the team. As a training director for a number of years, you know, Ray was... Uh, you know, a stickler for us training um, in any weather. You know, we were scheduled to train, we were training, and uh, which was good uh, for us as a team in that it, it uh, you know, we don't, we don't get to respond in uh, only when the weather's nice or the sun is shining. And uh, it's something I really remember um, about Ray is, is his uh, dedication to being serious about training that we trained in any weather, in any location, um, that it was uh, challenging and realistic. Um, the team recently did a, a memorial training one evening in the dark, in the snow, to uh, remember Ray and the high standards he set for us. Over the years, we had a few folks that dropped out, but I would say 99 plus percentage of all the SAR members that worked with Ray appreciated the fact that he challenged them and he taught them and they were learning things and it was not easy all the time. And you know, it's easy to go set up a training and let everybody succeed. It, it's, we came up on the mantra, train big, rescue small. And we did that through um, one of the classes that we took from an outside agency. What that means is train bigger than the rescues that you're doing which will make the actual rescue smaller and simpler. And Ray started that path and oh my gosh, we were really heavily into map and compass. And this was before cell phones were dialed in the way they are today and before a lot of GPS or PLBs, but everything we did was map and compass. And um, we did a training up on Teton Pass and there was about two feet of snow and it was late fall. So it was a mix between skis and walking. And um, it was through the Black Canyon area, heavily timbered canyon. And it was coordinates, uh, an azimuth to a particular location, pace counts, you know, how many meters. And it would give you clues to find the next one. And basically laid, Ray laid it out on the computer in his office, being the engineer that he was, went out and set it up. He put these little, um, the little orange pieces of flagging, four inches long and heavy timber stuck to a side of a branch somewhere. And if the wind didn't blow just right, you didn't see it, right? And um, so some people struggled, most did great. Um, but the funny part is two folks uh, missed the first clue and they found another flag not far away, which sent them on a wild goose chase to nowhere. And they ended up from Teton Pass, they ended up in Indian paintbrush on top of the hill. We were done, everybody was done at the end of the day. And, and hey, where are these two guys? And we had to actually go look for them. They missed the clue and they walked all the way up there and had to walk down Fall Creek, caught a ride and got back. It was terribly funny. But when they got back, Ray looked at him like, 
oh bummer you're gonna have to do it again <laughs> yeah that's just rage it was great and they did it again because they wanted to pass i mean i just remember that after after we started getting involved like the early days he was always over prepared <laughs> or like you know an example would be and Zach's gonna laugh at this because it's totally yeah. true. We'd get home from, from work, get over the pass, and we'd go to do a bike ride in the evening, just, just from the house there up, up Moose Creek. And so we'd be going out with our dad for an hour and it'd be six o'clock. And it, it gets in the summertime, you know, it gets dark late. And I just remember that before he was involved in search and rescue, we'd just jump on the bikes and rip out there. and do the lap. And then after he started getting involved with search and rescue and doing the training, and it was like, he would come out with this giant fanny pack, just full of stuff. Yeah. He'd be like, are you guys ready to stay out overnight? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm coming home. But um, yeah, he was super prepared. I mean, he had everything in there after he had started to get involved with search and rescue and like, he was ready to stay out overnight he was ready to help us if we were injured on the trail or you know anything like we were gonna survive even if it was just an evening ride from the house you know I think he had pretty much everything in that fanny pack <laughs> that you could fit in there spokes and just you know bike parts but also all the stuff to stay out overnight so that was kind of where it went from there like always prepared The call came in that it was a snowmobile accident. Um, I think we had information that the patient was unresponsive, so there was some heightened preparation for that, knowing that it was a significant injury. Um, sometimes it's you know lower leg injury or back injury, those types of things. And this one came in with um, a little more urgency. We collectively decided, hey, let's go up and fly. It was a bluebird day. It was. Um, I think I remember it being around in the teens, 15, 18, 19 degrees, clear blue skies, with some puffy clouds, very light wind. So we decided to go. I called Mike. I remember that distinctly. I called Mike at home and or wherever he was at. I'm like, hey, can you come down and go on this? We need you know, medical. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I got geared up to go. So I was geared up. Mike came down. Uh, we were ready to go. I think we were loaded up, honestly, in the aircraft and Ray came, you know, zipping up in his car. Hey, can I go? Can I go? And I'm like, hey, I'll get out and go. So I got out of the aircraft and I'm like, you know, filled these guys in and they left. I went up Cash Creek skate skiing that afternoon. That was my initial plan. So I just bailed on them and let them go do the rescue. We go into this job with our eyes wide open. We know that our volunteer career is inherently dangerous, but we don't expect to have fatalities. We don't expect to have any injuries. Looking back at this, we really made good conscious decisions to do it right. And we did go through our protocols and you can just mark this up to things happen. And things happen that you can't control. And when they happen, they happen fast and people get hurt. Coming up in part two of this series, as Moyer Shriver and pilot Ken Johnson 
headed north over Jackson Hole. They discussed their different roles. They remarked on what a beautiful day it was to be flying. Moyer sent a quick text to his wife Lisa, letting her know he was out on a rescue. Little did he know that in the next few minutes, he would be the one frantically calling for help. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.